Father, we thank you for this time together. Oh, what a joy to sing to you, Lord. We thank you that we remind ourselves in song that you are in control of all things. We need to hear that, Lord. We have a world that thinks things are out of control. We have a world that's constantly concerned with controlling everyone else's life. But we have a God who is in absolute control of all things everywhere. And we'll learn that again today in the text. So, Lord, cause us to trust him, trust you in all that you do, Lord. Lord, we thank you for that type of trust, Lord. We entrust to you the Christians in Afghanistan. Lord, we realize that in the next coming weeks and months, it is very possible Christians will die for their faith. True Christians, true Christians have believed that the only way to the Father is through Christ alone, Lord. We beg you for their lives, their protection. But we thank you that you're in control. Lord, we pray for America, where many Christians won't go to church now. And yet other Christians will die. So Lord, we pray that you would resurrect the hearts of lazy believers. Those who have strayed away during these last few years, God. Pray that you would awaken them. Many may not be saved, Lord, as they claim Christianity, but we pray you would save them and cause them to come back and be a part of a church that preaches the all-sufficient Word of God. Lord, we pray for America. It's sick, Lord. It's steeped in sin. And Lord, it is the church, the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is going to be the light in this dark world. So we pray that you would bring reformation to your church in America. Lord, thank you for those who, who are here, even though they've struggled with illnesses, Lord, we're blessed to have them with us, Lord. Thank you for new marriages. Thank you for upcoming weddings. Thank you, Lord, that there's still people dedicated to biblical marriage. Lord, our heart is in tune with you, Lord, when we walk according to your word. We find great joy in obedience. Would you cause us to live that way today? Cause us to be motivated by your word, truth of of the gospel, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, to live for you and not for ourselves. Lord, time is short. Time's short, Lord. May we be ready when you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 23. I will attempt to finish the end of chapter 3 this morning. What a great chapter this has been. As we recall, the Apostle Paul has been uh, dealing and challenging the church to understand that they are God's building, they are God's field, and they are working in them. And he's also challenged them to understand that there's rewards or lack of rewards at the end of this life depending on whether you built God's way or your way. Those things will be judged. God has perfect ability to judge the heart of all men, and there will be great reward in heaven, or there will be a very smoky time in heaven. And yet, God is gracious. We saw at the end of the text last week that a man is saved by fire. There will be those who will have no rewards, it seems. And yet, by the pure graciousness of God, will enter into heaven. But now Paul wants to take the imagery of the building farther in this text. He, he wants to go to a whole nother level. He reveals that he is not speaking of just some ordinary building, some ordinary structure. He begins to speak in spiritual ways that only Christians would understand. He's starting to talk about the temple of God and how he resides in it. By way of introduction, I want to set the tone through another text um, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? 1 Peter chapter 2. The apostles all through the New Testament use this illustration of the temple of God to help us understand what God is doing in our life and how he resides with us. 1 Peter chapter 2 is another great example of that. He's challenged the church in chapter 2 to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Stop living like the world. They'll be like a newborn babe who just longs for the milk of the word to grow. And he's not talking about the immaturity here. He's just talking about growing spiritually. 
Then he challenges you if you've tasted the Lord. If you tasted the Lord, do you have the flavor of God in your spiritual mouth? You know who he is. If that's true, he begins to help you understand that you're, bar, you're, you're part of something so much greater. Verse 4, he introduced to us Christ as the living stone. Notice he says, in coming to him, that's Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. Now listen to this terms that he gives to his son, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So here we have the building beginning, right? The cornerstone, this one called the living stone, this one Jesus Christ. And look at the Bible says he is choice and precious in the sight of God. You know, God is Christ-centered. He loves his son. He exalts his son. He points everything to his son. The whole building of God, the, the family of God is built on his son. But the next verse brings us into the building. Look at verse 5, just the two, first two words. You also. So exegetically, that's tying us to the passage before. You also. Well, you also what? Notice what it says. You also. So we must too be chose, excuse me, choice and precious in the sight of God. See, that's how you study your Bible. You look, you stay in the text. You also. Well, what does that mean? We are also choice and precious to God. Isn't that astounding? That he would give us a very similar title that he does, his son. What a God we have that would look at us that way. But notice he also calls us living stones, opposed to what? Dead stones? <laughs> Christ is not dead. He rose from the dead and beat death. We too have beat death in Jesus Christ, so we are living stones. And you can see the imagery that begins to happen here. You look, he says, are being built up into a spiritual house. Our God takes his son, plants him as the cornerstone. Everything is built off of him. He is, he is the, the foundation of all that we believe, all that we are. From there, he selects choice and precious stones out of the world. That's us. His choice, his way. He puts us in the foundation and begins to line us up in the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's building a great temple. And you and I are it. Notice what he does. He makes us a holy priesthood. So it's not only just a building, but it's full of people. It's people who have the right to walk into the Holy of Holies at any moment because the sacrifice has been made, the final sacrifice, we can walk into his presence anytime as his holy priesthood. And notice what we do. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews says we offer up sacrifices of praise with our lips. They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion. He uses this word to show the difference in the completion of the Old Testament into the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I lay in Zion. This is heavenly thinking, right? I lay in the heavens a choice stone. This is Christ, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isn't that verse true for you? I love that verse. I am not disappointed in Jesus Christ. I'm disappointed in myself sometimes. I can be disappointed in others at times, but I'm never, never disappointed in Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. He's what everything is built on. Notice he goes on to say, this precious value then is for you who believe. Oh, this isn't for the world. This is foolishness. We're going to talk about the temple of God and actually God dwelling in us. Foolishness to the world. But for us who believe, this is precious, isn't it? But for those who disbelieve, uh-oh, the stone, Jesus, which, is the build, which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone, verse 8, a stumbling, a rock of offense. Now he's in Isaiah 8 now. Oh, Jesus is a stumbling block. What? I can only get to God through, through him? See, they reject that. It makes no sense to them. They stumble over the, the only one that can get them to the Father. Verse 8 says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, look at this, they were also appointed. That's a sovereign passage, isn't it? 
That's a passage that says, God is control of all those who are saved and all those who are not. He is in absolute control. Though we do not know who that is, God does. And look at verse 9. But you. Well, here we go. A versative conjunction. There are some that are headed for doom. They've been appointed to that. That's pretty dark, isn't it? That's pretty, pretty scary in a way. Pretty, pretty hard to think about. But not you. See, see he, the, the writers do this. The Spirit leads them to help you bring you back into what the Lord has done. But you, you're a chosen race. Oh, God's got a new people. He's got a people made up of every tribe, tongue, and language. He's got a people from every race. And he's made a now a new race, a chosen race. Not, not just a race that stumbled into a relationship with God. This is a chosen race of people. Everything about salvation, everything about our life is based in the sovereignty of God. You can't get around it. You are a chosen race. Notice we're a royal priesthood. Not only do we have the right to come into the presence of God as priests, believer priests, who come in to worship him and honor him, but we're part of this kingly lineage because we're now in the family. The king of kings is our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a passage this is. And then he says this, you're a holy nation, a holy ethnos. I love that. Now, we probably say we're Americans, but in all reality, we should probably say we're Christians. That's who we are. Afghani, Israeli, American, African, Indian. We are Christians. We are God's holy ethnos of people. And we're a people for God's own possession, not our own. We don't do things our way here. We don't go, well, what do you guys want to do? Let's do it our way. No, we do it God's way because we belong to him. We teach his way. We hold to his word because we belong to him. We're not our own people anymore. We belong to him. And the whole reason, notice this, and I hope we're doing this daily, brothers and sisters, so that you... Me and you, individually here, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our goal in this world. Are you saved? Do you know that God saved you from your sins and has given you eternal life through Jesus Christ? Then you should be a proclaimer. That's what we do. We proclaim the one who pulled us, saved us, rescued us out of darkness. Well, as you turn back to 1 Corinthians now that we've had this introduction on this beautiful temple that we are been made up into and who God indwells, we begin to look at this text. And Paul, like Peter, is calling our attention to God's holy temple. It was the center of Israel, right? The temple was put there. The tribes were placed around it. It was the center of everything of the nation. And now Paul, once again, is bringing us back to this place where God himself dwells. And Paul, like the wise master builder that we spoke of last week, would quickly recognize the distinctions of this building, that this is the house of the living God. This is the house of the living God, our lives. But sin often blinds believers. And even though there is clear evidence in the word of God that he dwells with us, sin often causes people not to think that God is close. We often, when we live in sin, we feel not close to God, but we feel far from Him. Sin blinds, and we soon forget that He has taken up residence with us. Well, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to start with a clear rebuke to awaken the Corinth church. They're asleep. They forgot the instruction of God's Word when He was there for a year and a half. He's going to awaken them with a great statement. Let me look at four points this morning with you in this passage. Number one, a spiritual awakening to the internal dwelling of the holiness of God. A spiritual awakening to the internal dwelling of the holiness of God. Look at verse 16 with me. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Well, look at that phrase, do you not know? Here Paul is challenging them. It is a light rebuke, but it is a rebuke that they should know. They should know. 
But you're the temple of God. They should have known that when they became a Christian, that the Holy Spirit indwelt them permanently. You know, you know why he's so adamant at this? Because he taught it to them. See, Paul wouldn't say this if he had not taught it to them in those year and a half. It's, that's why he can say it emphatically. Do you not know? <laughs> I was there for a year and a half. We talked about you as a Christian and what took place when you became a Christian, how the Spirit permanently indwelled you, and you became the temple of God. And so he's trying to awaken them again. The word know, um, often we find that word gnoskis there, but that's not what this word is. It's oida. And oida is a word that means there's an inherent knowledge now. There's an inherent awareness of truth. And so Paul is saying, look, are you inherently aware of that the Spirit of God dwells within you, believer? And he believed they, were, they should have been aware of this. But sin, and listen, chasing the world's philosophies, fighting and battling over things of the world will rob you of the knowledge of God's Word. I promise you, I will plead through the sermon with you to let the things of the world go. Quit hanging on to that stuff. Quit fighting over vaccines and problems and all that stuff. God will lead you through this. That, we have to let go of that with politics and uh, I'll, I'll be careful. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> Trust in God. He's, you are his temple. He's dwelling in you. This is a theme he uses so often. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Context. Lawsuits. Before that, sexual impurity. And then he turns back to some of that mistreatment of, of the Lord's body and not taking care of the temple that God has you. Verse 19 of chapter 6, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? and that you are not your own. What great statements on this thing. Verse 20, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. See, he's coming back to this over and over. Look at chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Drop down to verse 14. Do not be bound together with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with dark? He's giving great contrasts here. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement, now listen to this, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. What a statement. Isn't it vivid there? Can you see the word picture there? We bring our little worldly treasures that we think are so important to us that we're willing to divide over and talk over. We bring those right into the temple of God. Oh, I'm here to worship you, God. I got my little buddy here, my little worldly view that I want to hold on to. I brought him into your temple. Oh, my goodness, this is vivid, isn't it? He's saying, let that go. What, what does that have to do with me? What is light? Light, darkness has nothing to do with light. Turn out these, it's pretty dark in this room when we shut all the lights out. You turn them on, darkness runs. Darkness and light cannot reside together. And that's what he's trying to teach us in our lives. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's now he's talking about his relationship with him, not so much our relation to the world here. We're not strangers and aliens to him, but you are now fellow citizens with, with the saints in our God's household. There's that oikos again, this building of God. Having been built up on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the, the chief or the cornerstone, so the apostles taught the foundation of what they taught was Jesus Christ alone. Now look at this, in whom the whole building being fitted together is grown into the holy temple, into a holy temple in the Lord. There you are. He's putting us together as the holy temple of God, just like Peter explained it. Verse 2, in whom you are also being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Oh, he dwells within us. 
Look, Paul is pushing these Corinthians. He's pushing us through the inspiration of the Word of God to understand who we are. Go back to the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, you are the temple of God. It's such a unique phrase, right? And, and it's what's one of the things that's really unique about this is Paul speaks of the temple in a singular way. He doesn't say plural. He says singular because he's dialing in on each Christian. And then secondly, when you study this, there's no definite article there. He goes, well, what does that mean? He says, you, you could translate it this, you are a temple of God. You are a temple. You go, aren't we the temple? Well, you have to be careful there. What he's doing here is he's using the word naos, which is the Greek word for temple used all over the place. And he's using it to show this is a place, there's a unique place within the temple system where God resides. It's called the Holy of Holies. He is not talking about the entire temple um, compound with all the brazen altars and all of the curtains and all of the, the, the skins and all of that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a unique place within the temple. It is the Holy of Holies. That's where he resides. So he's connecting us to the most holy place in the world for Israel was the Holy of Holies. That's what he's saying about us. I think that's astounding. And so he says, look, I'm not talking about the temple of Israel anymore. That was a picture of something that was coming. I'm talking about you. Individually. I reside in you. What a beautiful thought. I couldn't help but go back to our series when we finished Exodus, we're in Leviticus now and Wendy's, but there in, in Exodus 34, when the temple's done and they all stand back and the Shekinah glory fills the temple and, and it's shone bright as the sun and what a spectacular thing that must have been. And people go, boy, I wish I could have seen that. I'll say, well, you did. The day God saved you. This spectacular Glory of God filled your soul and made you a temple. It's amazing to think about. Do, do we take our salvation that lightly? Do we look at something physical better, something in the Old Testament that was pointing forward to something greater? Do we look at that as better? I hope as we study God's word, we go, it is astonishing, it is a miracle, it is an awe that he saved me and he fills himself, he fills me with himself. I now possess the Shekinah glory of our God. That's an awesome thing to think about. It's humbling too. And so under the new covenant, our hearts are the holy of holies. Isn't that wild? I don't have to go somewhere else. He's right here. See, you know why he says he never leaves us, forsakes us? Because he's residing within us. So Paul is striving here to help this Corinth church and Christians today to understand that they themselves both individually and collectively make up this temple of God. And though Paul himself visited the temple, you can study this. In the book of Acts, he goes to the temple, he goes to synagogues, he goes, he even makes offerings at times. He was doing that all not to cause a stumbling block to his believers, but to bring them to an understanding who the true temple was. This is what he did over and over, and he always identified himself as the temple of God. But notice Paul affirms this by saying this. Look at verse 16. The Spirit of God dwells in you, plural. Is the, the you is plural there. And look, we are holy because the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts and lives in the believer. That's why we're holy. And... and and he's just reminded the, the Christians here in Corinth not to be controlled by sinful human wisdom. I, I'm the Spirit of God. I'm in your life. I've given you the possession of the mind of Christ, right? He told them, you have the mind of Christ at the end of chapter 2. So he looks at their behavior. Verse 3 in the same chapter says, you're full of jealousy, strife, and factions. Those are shameful and they're corrupting my temple. Get rid of them. That's what he's doing. Don't bring that into my house. Do you have jealousies? Do you have envy? Do you have strife? Are you following something that's not of God? Are you, are you attracted to something that's God? He says, don't bring that into my house. You're corrupting my temple. I'm here. This is where I reside. And I think you have to ask yourself, all of us, what are you doing with the temple of God? 
Have you made the temple of God the temple of the world? Where's our minds? Where's our thought process? How do, we, how do we get through all the things that the world is fighting over and wrestling over and stay out of that, not bring that into the temple of God as we trust him? Well, it comes through knowledge. And knowledge that leads to a heart change that we belong to God. And look, brothers and sisters, just like Corinth, sometimes we need a spiritual awakening. I don't know how many different people have come up to me over this last just couple months and said, I got caught up in that stuff. And I've asked the Lord to forgive me. I got caught up in what the world was saying and what was going on and in the battles and fighting with family and people in the church and stuff. And they're repenting of this stuff. Are you? We are the temple of God. God's in full control of every breath and everything that happens in the temple. Please submit to him. Or live in misery. It's his temple. Second thought. The holiness of God will destroy false workers and identify the saved. Look at verse 17. What a statement's made here. If any man or any person, here's the idea, destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Now, not only is God holy, you need to understand this, but all those who he indwells are holy. So we're holy because God's holy. We're not holy because we keep some list of rules and we check them off every day and make sure we've done all that. That does not make you holy. Now, you may have things that God has brought. I hope you have, oh, we all have areas in our life that we look at the scriptures and say, yes, I want to walk with God in that way. But I am holy, positionally holy, because Jesus is holy and God is holy and they've invaded my life and live in there. That's why I'm holy. So without identifying by name, Paul starts to point out that there's people here, there's somebody listening to this letter, either back in 2,000 years ago in Corinth or even today, he's pointing out that they are devoid of God's spirit. And with devoid of God's spirit, they reject the things of God. They actually try to destroy the temple of God. And he makes a very strong statement, I'll destroy them. Now, there are those... I think what he's talking about, who refuse to let go of the world. They're trying to have Jesus in the world. They're trying to marry those. They're trying to integrate the world and Jesus and the word of God. They're trying to integrate those. And I think this is who he's talking about. They know the truth, and yet they're holding on to fallen human wisdom, and they're wanting to integrate that, and it's causing great distress in the church, great distress in their life, and they're living like the world. Now, it's clear in verse 17 that he's speaking of unbelievers, right? There are churches who try to use this verse of loss of salvation. That is not true. And we know that, right? Because God would never destroy those he's redeemed. Well, it would make him out to be a liar. He's given you eternal life. So, so it has to be unbelievers here. But they're hidden sometimes within the church. They're hidden within Christianity. And the way you spot them is they're always trying to take the things of the world and the things of God's word and somehow marry them together, somehow integrate them together so that they can try to find peace there. And they never do. And God says this will bring destruction upon them. And see, these unsaved eventually attack God's people. Sometimes it takes pandemics. Sometimes it takes difficulties that hit. And then those false Believers, those ones that God will destroy someday, they come up. They finally show themselves. And we've seen that happen from social justice to woke to pandemics to all kinds of things. We're starting to see that in the church. They're in amongst us. When Paul left Ephesus, uh, meeting with the Ephesian elders, he says, my departure, there will, be, there will be wolves who will rise up among yourselves seeking to devour the flock. See, I'm not telling you something new. This happens all the time. And it's people who have, have firm grasp on the things of the world, and they want the things of God, but they love the things of the world more. God says, I'll destroy them. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 tell us a little more of this. He says, this is Paul speaking, of the, he's speaking to the church. For many walk of whom I've often told you. Think about that. He's not just saying this once or twice. He says, I'm often telling you this. 
and tell you now weeping that there are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, their God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds, what? On earthly things. You want to know if you're a Christian or not? Because sometimes it's hard to tell, right? I go to church, I've been baptized, I give, I do all those things. Where is your mind? Is it set on earthly things constantly? Are you constantly consumed with earthly things? See, Paul's trying to say, we're not of this world. (laughs) We don't belong to this. We don't integrate fallen worldly wisdom with the pure word of God. They don't mix. Put our faith in Christ alone, in his word alone. Notice he says here in verse 17, for the temple of God is holy. And look at this. And that is what you are. Yeah, it was a, it's a tough statement at the beginning of the first half of 17. There's people out there trying to destroy the temple of God, and I'm going to destroy them. But then he turns right back to speak to the Christians, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. <laughs> Why will God protect his church? Because he's holy and we're holy. He will protect his church in Afghanistan. More than any American army or world forces or UN could ever do, he protects his holy church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that doesn't mean we just sit back and go, oh, yeah. No, we're working right now, even as elders, trying to figure out how we can help in some way. But look, he doesn't win, Satan loses. Because God is holy. And the church belongs to him. And he's made us separate from the world, so let's live separately. And think about this. God has placed his own children in this unique relationship, this unique union with Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be his temple where he indwells us permanently. He causes us to be free from sin. The Bible says we're without spot or wrinkle. You know what he's doing there? He's comparing us to the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. So you go, well, wasn't that Christ that was without spot or wrinkle? Absolutely. And you know why we're without spot and wrinkle? Because of Christ. So now I'm a perfect sacrifice to lay my life down for the Lord because through Christ I've been cleansed and I'm I'm without spot or wrinkle. That's astounding because you know ourselves, don't we? But that's how God looks at us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, we think this is a marriage text, but it's also very much a church text. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she shall be holy and blameless. Isn't that beautiful how the church, Ecclesia, is always in the feminine tense? It's his bride. He sure cleaned us up nice, didn't he? He sure made us presentable. Yeah, without spot, wrinkle, holy, and blameless. This is how he wants us to live our life. Now, notice at the end of 17 that Paul gets with the Corinth church here. He gets, he's getting there. He's trying to push them by stating that they are the temple of God. And despite their sin, despite our sin and our worldly desires for human wisdom at times, he keeps his believers set apart in Christ and deems them holy and even calls them the temple of God. As he started out this letter, he told them that they've been sanctified in Christ. They're holy, hagias, saints by calling. So remember, the church is holy because God's holy. Riverbend is not a holy church because in and of itself is, is we're holy because we're just a bunch of people here. Riverbend is a holy church because God's holy. And we stand on that, not on our own works. But th- just think about this for just a moment. I want you to think about this temple situation. Just contemplate the indwelling of God. You find the nation of Israel wandering, wandering around the, uh, the desert before they go into the promised land. There their enemies are watching them. War has not changed. The enemies watch enemies. And here they're constructing this temple in this desert. But in this temple there's no idols. There's no gods for them to bow down. They have gods. They have their Dagons and Baals and Astros and all that there. They bow down before that. But there's this temple with no idols in it. And yet... 
the living God of Israel comes and dwells in that. It was foreign to them. They couldn't understand it. There's some kind of holy of holies that the Shekinah glory is there and is among the people. Then Paul, go to the New Testament. Paul gets to Athens and he goes up to Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. And there he's on that hill looking at all the Greek gods and, and they're all proclaiming that these are our gods. And he comes across a god that's called the unknown god and he takes a, a moment there in his great biblical apologetics and says, look, there is a god that doesn't dwell in temples or tabernacles made with human hands. I thought about that this week. Was he talking about heaven? Or was he talking about me? I always thought it was heaven. And I think it is to some point. But our God dwells in us. You know how foreign that was to the Greek world? That gods would come, God's deities would come and live in matter, in people, in sinful people? They thought Paul was a fool. That's why he says the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. The cross of Christ leads to us being the temple of God. Do you get that? That's what it does. And so now he's reminding these Corinth Christians that they're saved. And they're the temple of God and the Spirit's dwelling in them. And the pagans that filled Corinth must have mocked these Christians for this. Oh, we heard about your apostle that came in and said, you're your own temple. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what the world thinks what we're saying? If they're online right now watching me tell this, they're going, what is he talking about? They don't have the Spirit. To you and I, this is a beautiful doctrine, isn't it? That God dwells in us. That he never leaves us and forsakes us. That we are his temple. It's a beautiful doctrine. It's sacred to us. It motivates our life. To the world, nothing. Foolishness. Don't understand it. What are they talking about? Oh, I love what God does. Why would we mess with the world's philosophies? Third thought. Listen to how I worded this. Pride comes and then the fall for those who foolishly handle the truth of God's word. Pride comes and then the fall for those who foolishly handle the truth of God's word. Look at verse 18 with me. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become a fool so that he may become wise. <laughs> After such strong doctrinal teaching on the temple of God, you might think he might have just said, okay, that's good, we got it. <laughs> He's going to close the context out. But, but not Paul. He wants to remind us that, that we, you can easily forget this, right? It sounded good at Sunday school, but on Monday school I've already forgotten that I'm a temple of God. That's what he's after here. Does that ever happen to you? You heard a sermon, you time in the word, and by the time you got to work or by the time you had to deal with the situation, you forgot what you studied. And so he wants to bring them back. He wants them to understand, look, there's, a way, there's, there's ways that you deceive yourself. And notice what he says, let no man deceive himself. So Paul's warning the reader, Paul's warning the church of Corinth, he's warning us of self-deception. There's a lot of self-deception. And notice he's alerting them to the dangers of falling away from the teaching, the true teaching of God's word, because you desire worldly wisdom or you desire what the world has. So self-deception often occurs when a person is striving to justify their own thoughts, their own desires, their, their, their desires for th something of the world. And so now self-deception enters in and they're easily deceived. And they start to accept things of the world. They intermarry with the world. Um, they buy the world's philosophy on all kinds of issues. And they start to try to integrate those things. And Paul says, you're going to fall into this deception. And he warns them, let no man deceive you. Or excuse me, deceive himself. And so we go, well, what does that deception look like? He says this, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age... 
So Paul reverts back to his earlier discussions, right? He addressed the Corinth church. He's addressing us that, that no one, no matter a leader, student, teacher, slave, free, male, female, young or old, anyone here. He keeps saying anyone all the way through this. Uh, verse 11, verse 12, he says it. Verse 14, he says it. Verse 15, he says it. Verse 17, he says it. Anyone. Because the desire of Christians at times is to fall into self-deception because they reject the truth of God's word because they've been listening to the world so much. And he's wanting them not to fall into that. He uses this phrase, in this age. Notice that at the end of verse 18. In the middle of it there. The wisdom of this world identifies itself with people. It doesn't live independent of people. It lives within people. And, 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 and that causes people to live independent of God and his word. And so their lives now are controlled and managed by the world versus the submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we submit to the lordship, the master, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ willfully and joyfully to that. Because in this age, and that means today as much as it was in Corinth, the world wants to rule your life. Hey, look, they lost you. You once belonged to the world. You were their sons and daughters. Satan's the ruler of the world. He's the power of the prince of the air, the Bible calls him. He lost you. But the Bible says there's a way back, even if you're a Christian and you've been caught in some of these foolish things, there's a way back. He says, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Isn't that an interesting statement? You go, Scott, what does that mean? Well, I love this statement. What I think it says is now you've got to make an about face. Repentance is a 180 degree, the opposite direction. That's what repentance means. Turn around. Go the other direction. And so here I think he's making this statement. I believe he's making a statement. Turn away, about face, go away from the world. You become foolish to the world. And, and And I think he says this in so many different ways through the scripture. It's dying so you can live. Galatians 2.20. Have you died to the world? Or are you still very much alive? What is your relationship to the world? Are you died so you can live? Is it a, do you have a willingness to reject worldly wisdom, not because you don't like the current president or administration or something like that, but because you have a biblical worldview and you understand that they have nothing to offer us? Do you understand that? See, that... That means that you become a fool in the, world, in the eyes of the world. See, you have to, though you think you're wise, you have to become a fool. Not, not acting foolish, right? The Bible, Proverbs particularly, talks about a fool. But we're foolish in the eyes of the world. See, there's a lot of Christians that the world goes, those guys think just like us. I met an evolutionist one day, and he said, oh, the church will come along in time. I was talking about creationism. I was on top of a mountain, about 10,000 feet, fishing a little lake up there. And, uh, and he said, oh, you Christians will come along in time. You'll, you'll adapt our view. And then what happens? We get theist, theistic evolution that comes along. And Christians trying to integrate the Bible and evolution. Sure, he's dead right. And, 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 but I go, not me, friend. I believe Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he was done, he said it was finished. So there isn't something left to do. Kinds are kinds. (laughs) Cows are still having calves. Horses are having fools. Dogs are having puppies. Doesn't change. And he said, you're a fool. Thanks. I'm in good company. Are you a fool? To the world. Young people, the world wants you. And it's hard to be a fool when you're young, isn't it? They want to trash you, they want to bring you in, they want you to walk with them. Don't do it. Be a fool for Christ. <laughs> be a fool for the gospel here. See, Paul's challenging them to see the contrast between Christianity and the fallen world. 
Paul desires the Christian to allow the gospel to grow them in their biblical wisdom. He desires the Christian to listen and obey to the word of God. He desires the Christian to be humble and have a heart of worship, to serve the Lord in a way that brings him glory. He desires the Christian to reject foolish pride and avoid the painful fall that comes with it. He's pushing us, isn't he? Look at verses 19 and 20. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasons of the wise that they are useless. Here, Paul reverts back to chapter 1 when he says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved is the power of God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's reverting back to that same statement here. And I think what's amazing here is Paul believes it's necessary to reiterate this. The world's wisdom is foolish. I think we have to say that over and over and over. This is why we're running certain seminars and, we're, and our BFGs are talking about this and our Bible studies are talking about this because the world is after you. Now, notice it's Paul's habit to quote Scripture, isn't it? And in verse 19, the end of verse 19, here he says, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. This is going to bring you... This is gonna, I study this as, oh, Lord, catch them. <laughs> and, and, he, and what's interesting, he takes us out of Job chapter 5, verse 13, and Eliphaz the Tenonite Timonite is, is lecturing Job. <laughs> he's wrong. He's dead wrong in what he's doing. But Job pulls this somewhat out of context, but he can do that. You can't. Um, he, he pulls this out, and he's comparing um, that. He, Eliphaz is saying that Job was compared against God, who was going to catch him in his craftiness. He was blaming Job for craftiness. But that's not what was going on here. He was wrong. But God says, he uses it this way, the so-called wise people of Paul's day who use their craftiness, God's going to catch them in it. What a statement. Their wisdom is not of God. And God catches those who so-called wise, he catches them in their own craftiness, and he turns their wisdom into foolishness. And he will do that someday. And it may not be till every knee bows and every tongue confess, but he will catch them in. He'll catch them in at death if they, if, they don't, if they get away with it in this life. He will catch them the last breath of their life. He will catch them. See, you and I don't have to fight those battles. And I think that's where Christians get a little lost sometimes. We think it's our job to go rescue something that only God can do. That doesn't mean we don't vote. That doesn't mean we don't stand up for what's right. That doesn't, I'm not saying that. But we get overzealous, and then we lose our joy because we're doing something only God can do. Does that make sense? Have you been there this last year and a half, a time or two? I have. It's time to let God do what God does. And it's time for the church to be serious about walking with him. That's what he's after. Oh, the second one is just as fun as the first one. Here in verse 20, he quotes Psalms 94.11. And he uses this idea of a word that's useless or futile, right? He says here in verse 20, the one, excuse me, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless, futile. And he's quoting Psalms 94.11 here. In the context, think about this, the context of 94, Psalms 94, is that uh, he captures the foolish what he calls the arrogant who oppress and kill the innocent. That's exactly what's going on in Afghanistan. You worried about that? I'm worried about it. We're praying about it. I got sons in the military. I mean, I, this is something that we think about and pray about. But I read this and I go, whoa, they're not getting away with anything. In, in, in Psalms 94, they're boasting that they're safe because the Lord doesn't see them. Yeah, they actually say that the Lord neither sees us nor pays attention to us. That's their boasting. And what Paul does, he equates this to those who pursue the world. Pretty soon you get blind. You don't think that, well, God must not care. Sin will make you think God doesn't care. That's what it'll do. God brings us to repentance. So Paul's making it clear that their thoughts, their deeds are fully known by the Lord. Nothing's hidden from his sight, and he's coming. And judgment's coming with him. Psalm, excuse me, Romans 1.21 says very similar. For even those who knew God, they did not honor him as God or give things, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Fourth thought. Christ is our great possession who unites us with the Godhead. Christ is our greatest possession. 
and he unites us with the Godhead. Look at verse 21. So then let us, let, let everyone boast, excuse me, let, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Well, Paul now is turning the thoughts of the Christians, the Corinth Christians and us, uh, away from the fallen wisdom of the world. And now he seeks, now what he's doing is he's going to finish out on a high note. He seeks us to desire the greatest treasure. He seeks, he seeks for us to understand the greatest possession of all that anyone could ever have is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his goal. Maybe you're not rich. Maybe you're poor. Maybe, maybe you have some struggles. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're going through cancer. Whatever it is, look, God has given you his own son. It's the greatest treasure in the world. And he's turning his attention. So he says, so then let no one boast in men Boasting is what you glory in, right? Some of you are really big Florida fans or whatever. I won't mention anybody else. What do you boast in? Paul says, I'll boast in the Lord. That's what he keeps saying over and over through this text. He wants you to realize that boasting in other things outside of Christ is prideful. And Christians were boasting in their worldly wisdom. And they jumped all over Paul. And they didn't like his orita- how he orated. And he didn't like his speech. It was contemptible to him. They didn't like his eyesight. But they sure liked Plato and Aristotle. And he said, oh, be careful what you're boasting in. And he doesn't want them to boast in fallen man's wisdom. But he wants them to boast and glorify and worship God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in short, he says, as fallen men goes, boy, look, you don't worship the creature, worship the creator. I think that's what he's after. And then he says this, all things belong to you. In other words, no more boasting in, in human leaders. Why? Because everything's yours in Christ. You have all the knowledge. You have everything you need. Don't look outside of Christ. Listen to this. Don't look outside your Bible. It has everything in it. So Paul starts to unfold this statement over the next couple of verses, and he says things like this. All things are yours because you have the greatest possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Whether Paul or apostle or Cephas, look at this, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Sounds like what? Romans 8, 20, Romans 28 and following, isn't it? So, so here he begins to say, look, all things are yours. And he says, including Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. We belong to you because we belong to Christ. So why are you creating factions in the church and following me? <laughs> he sees that as completely foolish. Today we have super pastors, you know, and everyone, oh, I like Piper, I like McGregor. Whoa, whoa. And of those, I know some of those guys. They said, stop following me. <laughs> you have me. I'm in Christ. We're together. We're equal. And this was their problem. And the factions were causing problems because they were after human teachers and human wisdom. I read this quote from Spurgeon some time ago, and I copied it down waiting for this passage. He said this, This is not a gospel of self nor a gospel of works, nor a gospel of baptism, nor a gospel of priests, nor a gospel of ministers. But it is the glorious gospel of Christ. Forget the men who preach. It w- uh, forget the men who preach it, it if you will. But oh, forget not the bleeding. Forget not the dying Savior to whom you bid. You have hope in him alone. Oh man, preachers... Biblical preachers do not like people following them in that sense. I think, just like Paul says, if you want to follow me, I'm going to Christ, so that's all you get out of this. <laughs> Christ, he's enough. And so notice he goes after this in verse 22, after this list of these three men, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Then look what he says. Here's what you get with Christ. You get the entire world. He uses the word cosmos in here. You get the entire physical universe when you follow Jesus Christ. You get it all. That's, he's trying to say, why do you want the world's wisdom when I have the world in my hands? I hold stars. I name them. They belong to me. I spoke it all into existence. Then he goes on to this, and this is good for today, even life and death. Oh, Man, this fear of pandemic has scared the world to death. 
They shake in their boots over a pandemic that actually is, is, is underneath the suicide rate by not a point or two, but by percentages upon percentages. I read something just lately, kids under 20 who have killed themselves during this. Nothing about it. Military soldiers killing themselves during this. Uh, the, the drunkenness and drug abuse. Um, I was just told uh, this week that a doctor up in Jacksonville, they lost 20,000 people in Jacksonville area to drug overdoses during the pandemic. Not even close to the death of COVID. And I'm not, I'm not, believe me, I, I, I hate the loss of anyone. But see, this is what the world, they get caught up in the wrong things. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have life and death. God has that in control. Paul said, to me, to live is Christ. To what? To die is what? Let me go home. <laughs> I'm going to fight and preach and love Christ and love my wife and my children and be a good neighbor and share the gospel while I'm here, but I want to go be with the Lord. To die is gain. Look, life in Christ is the only life for Paul. It was his greatest possession. Death for the unbeliever, it's the end of all things, so they think. It's just the beginning of eternal death. They're afraid of it. But not us. In Christ, death is a great gain. Our Heavenly Father waits for us. He's triumphed over death through his Son. And then he says this in verse 22, or things present or things to come. I love this. Notice he doesn't say things in the past. Philippians 3 says, forget the things that are past. He forgives you. Press on. Stay in the present and look forward to the future. And so he looks forward. And he moves forward knowing that Christ has the victory. He's going to win the battle. And so Paul sums it up. Finally, he just goes through this list and he says, all things belong to you. <laughs> because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Into John 17. I'm out of time. I can't read this, but... Man, John chapter 17, verse 21 and 23, Jesus does a masterful job talking about our unity with God. I'm in you, you're in me, they're in me, we're all, we're all one. No wonder we can't be lost. We reside in the temple of God, we're one with him. And so Paul wants them, look, you want to settle for me? You want to be a follower of me? You want to be a follower of the world? You want to live in fear of death? you're sure settled for a lot less. See, I think that's what he's saying. You have the greatest possession ever. And look what happens, Christians. When you and I get caught up in worldly views, we forfeit joy, we forfeit truth, we forfeit satisfaction. You give it up. Maybe for a short time. David said, return to me the joy of my salvation. He didn't lose his salvation, he lost his joy. And brothers and sisters, I know when I'm not walking with the Lord because I lose my joy. And you know it too. Something of the world, some fear, something has pulled you away and you're not enjoying Jesus like you should. That should be the marker for us. Repent when you lose your joy. Find out what it is and repent of it and walk with the Lord. Listen, brothers and sisters, you are united together with the eternal oneness of the triune God. You're united with him. You're in fellowship with him. Oh, don't give that up. Are you feeling lost? Repent. Ask God for your joy back. Are you hanging on to things of the world? Hurting the unity of your family? Hurting the unity of the church? Repent of that. Turn from it. Worried about the world? Worried about what's going to happen? King Kings has a good handle of that. Let him have it. Let him do his work. Do yours, but let him handle that. Is fear affecting your, your view of life and death? Rehearse with yourself what death brings to the Christian. And you will not fear it. In fact, you may embrace it. Father, I thank you for this time in the Word. There's so much to be said here. These are truly profound passages, Lord. Your Word is profound. It's bottomless. We can keep searching and studying it. But in the end, Lord, the goal of your Word is to cause us to walk with you and experience the joy and the great possession of Jesus Christ and becoming the temple of God where you reside in us, Lord. Such peace is there. 
Such brightness and joy and grace and mercy is all there, all that we need for life. So Lord, forgive us. This world's passing away and we seem to want to ride on that ship. Lord, help us not get caught up in these things. Help us be faithful members of the body of Christ. Faithful living stones making up the household of God. Choice and precious in the sight of God. Oh Lord, we need your help. Lord, there's many that have disappeared from the church. We pray that you would awaken them. Help them put their hope in you, Lord. We pray you would bring a great reformation, a great revival to America's church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.